The goal is always to build a venture scale business, like large, independent, sustaining. That was never the question. Um, the question, I mean, kind of simplistically was like, should we take 20% dilution to have the cash sit in the bank account? And so we waited until we had, it ended up being $10 million of annual recurring revenue before we raised a series A. And that was the point where it did start to feel like money was a blocker to the business. But for so long, I mean, there were many blockers. It just like wasn't cash. You're listening to First Block, a Notion series where founders and executives from the world's leading companies tell us what it was like to navigate the many firsts of their startup journey and what they learned from that experience. I'm Akshay Kothari, Notion's co-founder and COO. Today, I'm joined by Christina Cassiopo, co-founder and CEO of Vanta. Vanta is the leading trust management platform that helps simplify and centralize security for the organization of all sizes. Thank you for coming. Thank you so much for having me. Yeah, we're so excited to have you on First Block. I guess I want to start with something that is unusual. You actually started in VC and then switched gears and became an operator. Uh, you know, most people do it the other way around. Uh, can you talk about the change? What, what prompted you to become an operator? Yeah, I got, uh, I think mostly just really lucky and worked at Union Square Ventures, my first job. And I really liked it in lots of ways, but I also deeply wanted to be one of the people who came in and pitched uh, on you know Monday or Tuesday rather than somebody who is just like sitting there and kind of trying to evaluate the pitch. Um, and I think I kind of knew that pretty early on in my tenure there. And so I had my own kind of feelings to work through about like, oh, my, you know, should I actually just stay in VC because it seems so nice. But I think fundamentally I like really wanted to build things. Can you walk me through like, how did you decide to leave? And then uh, it wasn't like you ran away to a different job. You actually like sort of tinkered with a lot of different things. Yeah, there was a lot of consternation at the time. I look back and I like made it much harder than I needed it to. But I think it was a couple things. I think it was, you know, again, feeling really lucky and privileged to be in this job and hear from entrepreneurs, but also grappling with feeling like I wanted to be one of them. I think also just two years of meeting entrepreneurs and founders every day showed me there's lots of different types of founders and different ways to do it. And I think when I got to USV, I sort of thought there was like the one way, which is what you talk people talked about, which is the like person who's been like coding all their life and goes into their college dorm room and makes a website that then a billion people use. And I like did not feel like I was that person at all. Um, but that's kind of like the founder type that was sort of lionized. And being at USV, I got to see different ways of doing it. And so there was like some amount of confidence building in that, getting to know a couple founders and just, you know, seeing what they were great at and also understanding they were just real people too. And there were things they were less great at and everyone was kind of trying to figure things out, even people who seemed like they were and are super successful. And so it was like some combination of all of that, I think was like really confidence building. And then, uh, so all of that helped and built confidence, but I still sort of had this chip on my shoulder because I wanted to start a software company, but I couldn't code. Um, and lots of people do that every day, but I didn't feel like I could. And so sort of what you implied, I took my bonus and like one year and just saved it and then left USV and didn't get a job and, and sort of lived off my bonus for two years. Um, and I joke it was grad school because you like, didn't have much money, but it wasn't really grad school. But just like taught myself to code and make websites and make many things that 
no one's ever really heard of, but kind of taught me how to do that. Kind of built a different sort of confidence. I still remember that time because I feel like you were not only like learning how to code, but you were also like blogging about that experience. And it's almost like, I think it was one of the earlier moments of like sort of building in public in some mm -hmm. ways. Can you talk about like, how did you decide to do that and sort of your experience through that? Yeah, I think it was like two things there. One was just trying to make sense of the whole thing myself, honestly. And it was just sort of a way of processing and, and you know, doing so with an audience, which is on one hand sort of petrifying. Um, but I think the other thing is Union Square Ventures at the time was known for investing in large networks of engaged users. And there was like this really deep belief that had led the firm to you know, start blogging in like the early 2000s and then invest in Twitter in I think 2007, maybe 2009, but very early, where um, there were just like huge disproportionate gains to like putting ideas out on the internet. Um, and it would like, you would iterate faster, you'd get better feedback, it'd be like a lighthouse for like-minded people, you know, like there was all this kind of intangible stuff. And I had just spent two years like immersed in that worldview and believed it. And so, I think it led me to like build much more in public than I probably would have been if, if left to my own devices, honestly. So let's talk a little bit about Vanta. I guess, can you talk a little bit about sort of your early inspiration? How did you decide to build Vanta? Yeah, so a couple fold, but one really kind of primary part was, um, if you like think back to the world in 2016, it, at end of 2016, early 2017, it was clear that security on the internet was really important. There are all these really high profile data breaches like Equifax, Sony hack, 2016 election. Um, and it was, it was kind of like there were like more and more of these and it felt like it would just continue and data security on the internet was gonna get more important. Um, meanwhile, when, you, when I went and talked to my friends who had startups, and ask them what, how they were thinking about this or what they did for security, they mostly didn't do anything. And they felt very guilty about that, right? Yeah. It was this sort of like sheepish, I know I should be prioritizing this more, but I don't quite know what to do, or like we're building features customers want, and like I, I should totally make sure all my doors and windows are locked, but there's just like not enough hours in the day, and I'm so sorry, you know, it's like generally the vibe. And so it did actually feel like there was this opportunity to build something that um, sort of acknowledged the moment and the importance of data security and how that was gonna get more and more important with helping startups prioritize it on their roadmaps mm -hmm. and really turning security from something you felt guilty about not doing into like a business driver and a revenue driver and something that helped you grow and win more customers too. You know, I've known you for a long time and I feel like I think of you as like a very consumery, mm -hmm. uh, like, you know, sort of like things that you would use, like I think you would build that. And so actually, can you like help me understand like, you know, taking on like a security company, like for me, it sounds a little bit sort of like uh, tough. Like how did you sort of get conviction that this is the thing that you wanted to build and, you know, sort of grow your company? A couple, of, but I think actually back to like D school days and like learning yeah. to build things people want and use, it it felt like there was a little bit of an arbitrage there, where like not everything in security is or was that, and so if you could bring that to the space, you you'd probably get like more rewarded than you kind of should yeah. <laughs> on some level, and it was also an easier bet to be like, well, someone will come and you know do this with security tools for like growing businesses or upstarts, right? And so anyway, so I think that's, that's sort of like the logical, part of the logical answer is it, it felt like this, yeah, neat 
kind of advantage that somebody else actually should have exploited first, but didn't, yeah. unclear why, um, that was still kind of there. I also think there was just a bit of security, it seems important, increasing in importance, like more and more, and that sort of felt inevitable, like the, the test for startup ideas, which is sometimes helpful is, you know, try to go 10 years in the future and look back and like what will have been obvious. And you're like, oh, that, you know, upstarts care more about security? Like, sure, no kidding, right? That also felt a bet, but a bet that it was like pretty comfortable to make. Fascinating. So in some ways, I think you almost saw it as like an, a space that hasn't seen a ton of innovation, hasn't seen, you know, it's not good user experience. And I remember, you know, I think it, getting a SOC 2 certification could take like years in many cases. And I think you all really sort of brought it down. And so you saw that as an opportunity to attack uh, and, and build a company. Very much so. And kind of as the first, like SOC 2s just seem like something where if it was easier to get them, more companies would get them. And they were, again, that's sort of disproportionate return thing. And so then it became all about, well, how do you help companies get that, like get them in real legitimate ways and use them to like unlock business growth. Can you talk still about the early days? Like when did you, like how did you think about this as like an idea to like, oh, this is actually a legitimately a good company that we're building? Yeah, there was actually a like seven, nine month transition there from like idea that sounded bad initially or sounded like something where you're like, well, I don't know how to do that. Like some expert should do that. Yeah. Um, and I think it was this, it was actually the D school process, but like deeply and truly it was conversations with CTOs and CEOs and sales leaders and security people and sort of the heuristic was keep having conversations until you have a couple where you kind of know 80% of what the person is gonna say. And at that point you probably understand it. And then it was prototyping and it was like, maybe we could code back, back to earlier part of the career, like had built a bunch of things no one wanted. And yeah. so didn't, particularly want to like code for coding's sake and so it's a bunch of prototyping and like spreadsheets and questionnaires and forms and things we'd tell people were code which was in fact totally manual behind the scenes um until like people really started to like some of those and then like finally started like actually writing typescript javascript incredible i think one of the things i read was that i think a lot of this got you to a place where then you could stick with sort of the original idea for, for many years. Mm -hmm. Do you still do research? Like uh, how does research sort of influence sort of your sort of roadmap ahead? Very much so. Um, I am someone for good and bad whose confidence about product decisions comes from talking to customers. The good is like if I do it, I, I generally feel like I have a pretty good sense of decisions um, or at least first cut decisions that then can be iterated on. The bad is if I stop talking to customers, I become a pretty useless like PM or decision maker, because um, I can sort of, you know, logic myself into anything or everything. And I just learned that previously. And so, yeah, kind of all, I mean, I guess two things. One, there's like a steady flow of just talking to customers and just trying to like build and refine mental model. And then for decisions like, you know, this past year we put an office in Dublin and have wonderful Vantons in Dublin, but like, how do we think about product customization for the European market? Um, it was like, well, making sure I have touch points with European customers so I can have concrete opinions on a question like that, let's say. Can you talk a little bit about sort of your earliest customers? Like, mm -hmm. how did you find your first few and maybe the process? I think the audience would really sort of 
you know, these are early entrepreneurs trying to figure out like, okay, how do you get the first five, 10 customers? So it'd be great to hear from you. Yeah, so earliest customers, so the some of them, probably half of them were f someone new personally. And so I think there was like a, a personal like credibility and trust thing. Yeah. And then the second group were like one degree removed, right? And so it was like, well, we both know this person in common and they trust you and, uh, there's no other way I would like get a SOC 2 or go through this process. So I will like try it with you. Um, I think there was like generally a theme theme of that. And so uh, the milestone of like, you know, the first customer we like, truly didn't know um, was probably four months in. And of course we didn't tell the person <laughs> that's what they were, you know, we just acted like everyone was like that. Um, but that was kind of a neat like internal. And internal this customer thing. came to you yeah, customer, had said yeah. like people had said good things, and you know they thought they they wanted to go through this process, and you know we were the way to do it, and you just smile, and you're like, of course we're the way to do it. Yeah. <laughs> you know, meanwhile being like, oh my gosh, <laughs> what's happening? Amazing, amazing. So you once said, um, you know, having users is essential if you want to make anything good. Launching is not like often yes. getting users is conflated with launching, but they're pretty different. Uh, and this is actually a lesson like sort of we all learn multiple times over <laughs> where we celebrate, you know, sort of launch. Yeah. Um, can you sort of elaborate on this point? Like, how do you all think about it internally? I think we've gone on both sides of the spectrum at Vanta. Um, so I don't, you know, claim to be perfect at this by any stretch of the imagination. But I think um, for most people and most products, you know, it's very rare to do the Facebook go into a room, emerge with something everybody just instantly wants for like the rest of us mere mortals. So it's just like a lot of iteration and like listening to people. And sometimes it's what they actually say. And sometimes it's what they're sort of saying without using the words, whatever, but just that process. And I think that is crucial to building like something people want, unless you, you know, catch lightning in the jar. Um, and so you like have to do that. Or in like in my role, like, you have to do that. Uh, that said, launches sometimes work and sometimes it's a lot of effort and like no one cares or no one comes through. Um, I worked on something previously where we spent all this time launching with a wait list because we weren't actually quite ready yet. And then two months later when we were trying to pull users off the wait list, no one remembered who we were. Uh, you know, and we, you know, it just was this like thing where we'd, we'd launched in order to get users but weren't quite ready. And then by the time we got back, it was sort of crickets. Um, we just spin up all these other processes, and so that is just that like decoupling. Um, I think launches can be very fun and very rewarding, and sometimes, and that is both great, and you need those moments because these like journeys are long and hard, and you can get a little distracted too. It actually sort of connects to the previous point. In some ways, do you all like de-risk yourself as you like build something new by talking to customers, just making sure like. Yeah, that impact is going to be there. Very, very much try. Um, and for the most part now, yes. Uh, and it's like, it's a bunch of things, right? It's like generally encouraging, you know, PMs and designers and engineers to have relationships with customers. Also not being too picky about it. Like if your friend is using Vanta, like game on, right? Anything kind of in the beginning. Yeah. Um, working with like a customer success team or a support team to flag people who are like particularly um, excited to give feedback or particularly annoyed about something such that we can try to give them a better thing, but like kind of building some of those processes in. Um, yeah, it, it's, it is rare at Vanta. We launch something and like at least 10 customers haven't touched it. 
It's amazing. Um, actually, that sort of reminds me, even in the early days, you all actually had a lot of customers, but didn't actually like publicly launch, right? Yes. Uh, any interesting insights we, from that? I think we went a little too far in that one. But so the thinking at the time was, um, again, like launching is a way to get customers and to do it when that is the biggest blocker. For maybe the first two years even of Vanta being in the market, that actually like kind of pipeline and SaaS terms that I now know um, didn't actually feel like the biggest blocker. Hmm. It was like, you know, how do we... Um, as folks come on, how do we onboard them and make sure they're actually using Vanta? You know, in the beginning, beginning we hadn't taken anyone through an audit. We weren't proactive with that knowledge, but we wanted to make sure that we didn't, you know, promise a bunch of companies we could do something and then fail yeah. to do it. And there was, so there was like a little bit of rate limiting there. Um, and then at some point, you know, they, it did become more of a blocker and also just a credibility enhancer where people would sort of show up and say, you know, hey, I emailed you because three friends and two Slack channels told me I should email Vanta, but you guys don't even have a website. Like, do you even exist? Like, what is this racket you are running? Um, and so there was just something where you're like, okay, we should now, you know, this is, this, you know, was fun for a bit, but now we're being a little too clever and, you know. It reminds me a little bit of like uh, an early story of Notion is that we didn't actually have a LinkedIn company page for mm -hmm. a long time. Yes. Because we were worried that our customers would look at how few employees work here. <laughs> and get freaked out. <laughs> yes. <laughs> um, when did you make a page, finally? When did we? I think we made it uh, 2020, I think. Oh, wow. So it's pretty late. <laughs> yeah. uh, uh, so it's actually three, four years old, the LinkedIn page. And uh, I think in 2020, we only had 30, 40 employees. And so, and we actually had large some large customers. And so we were yep. actually like pretty, uh, worried that people would be like, oh, yeah, this company cannot be. And we also hadn't raised a lot of money, uh, which I think you also did some interesting things there yeah. we'll get to. Um, but so, so early days of Vanta, I think I'm guessing a lot of it um, were startup customers because mm -hmm. I think they wanted to sort of build these uh, certifications or you know improve their security. Um, uh, how, did you all think about like a certain segment of customers as like the ideal profile or how did you go about that? We did. Uh, this is another, um, I don't know if it's right, <laughs> strongly held belief one way or the other, which is I think there's like, especially in the early days, some amount of like, you can do the whiteboarding and again, try to logic into like, here is my ideal customer. Yeah. And you should just go try a bunch of stuff. When I first started selling Vanta, I sort of just took every conversation I could and didn't think too much about it. And like really broadly, maybe there were these like really tiny startups that weren't interested because they had other problems. Let's see if like, what are we building? Does anyone want it? Yeah. They were like growth stage companies and heads of engineering. And they were, they actually ended up being the most for early Vanta. And then there were much larger companies that had processes that they wanted to automate. And that also seemed um, important and like an opportunity, but we'd have to do a bunch of custom work for them. And that sort of scared us as technology people. So anyway, we ended up with these like heads of engineering of, I don't know, 50 to 200 person companies call it. And that was a sweet spot. I think if you'd told me to guess, I would have said founders. It's actually much more mm. today where folks, you know, encounter Vanta for the first time, but not in 2018. Interesting. So founders is an even smaller yeah, like now we um, we work with, I think, about three quarters of the YC batch, right? And it's just like companies in the batch. Um, whereas when we went through YC, this wasn't a blocker. And I think it actually is just a testament to 
kind of how much the bet that there'd be more security verification in the future has panned out, mm. where now these two-person YC companies get asked for SOC 2. They didn't five years ago, but they do now, and so it is a legitimate blocker for them. So do you now have all the segments from like the two percent mm. startup all the way to like large enterprises? Yeah, I mean it uh, is. It's the like when someone asks now, you're like, you know, what's your your go to market motion? And the answer is sort of yes. I mean, it's a smart. There's a much smarter, yeah. more segmented motion, but uh, yeah. Um, can you talk a little bit about like the challenges that come with that? Because I imagine like a two percent startup asks for very different things than like let's say. A larger enterprise? Yeah, where I think we've, when we've done this the best, it's kind of the same recipe for, for most other things, but like segmentation and focus, mm -hmm. right? And acknowledging that a founder is going to and wants to buy or engage with Vanta very differently than the VP of engineering, than a CISO. And so and splitting out go-to-market motions and sellers and pitches, and it's all fundamentally Vanta, or you know, if you ask me, it's all it's all the same thing, but yeah. yes and no, right? These pitches are very different. The way we like interact with the customers is very different. Um, and that focus has been help, very helpful. I, I heard a story where I think you wake up before sunrise to manually yeah. send emails to customers to get their feedback. Um, can you just talk a little bit about uh, uh, sort of like just this customer obsession, you know, and, and, and how does that sort of, how have you built that culture inside the company? Yeah, it's actually even worse. It was um, the first really high level Vanta, like connects to your systems and then checks on how they're set up and identifies misconfigurations. Does more of that super high level. And so one of the first checks we did was, does everybody have two-factor enabled on their email? Yeah. Um, which sound, and you asked founders and they all said yes. And so we kind of didn't build it because we're like, oh, it never has this. And we actually started looking at like the configuration data and realized no one had it. And so as we were building really the system to do these checks, I would set an alarm for like 5.45 AM and like pull the latest configuration information and send emails to customers that were kind of like written like a robot, right? We're like supposed to be an automated email telling them who their company did and did not have two-factor in their emails and how you go fix that. Um, and I would do it every Friday morning. And uh, it's funny because you, I mean, it's like, of course not done. It's of course done by a person. It literally came from my email. But people would write back and be like, hey, I think you have you know, a typo in your template, you know, this. And you're like, oh no, it's just five in the morning and I wrote the email wrong. <laughs> Thank you for the feedback. Um, but anyway, that I think was, uh, makes for a good story now, but I think the like deeper cultural thing is still the, look, you can go build whatever you want, but like make sure it's useful first. Mm -hmm. um, and once you know it's useful, it's relatively easy to go write the code, usually, you know, caveat, caveat. But the hard part is and kind of always is like, is this something people want? And so try to like de-risk that before you go, you know, kind of solidify everything in code, which is ends up being harder to change. Fascinating. I think we're we're in an age where I think we're trying to have bots write emails that sound like human. You did the yes. opposite. <laughs> uh, anything else in like when you look back at this journey, you've talked to so many different customers, like probably hundreds, if not thousands. Um, um, what have you learned in this journey? that sort of helped you refine how you sort of talk to them. Mm. Uh, even if you sort of take it all the way back to, I think when we were in D school, as we talked a lot about sort of importance of ethnography and being in the field, how has some of that, like how does that all, how does all of that connect? I think for me personally, the, 
emphasis on segments or personas. Mm. I sort of, I don't know, intellectually understood or probably could have like recited it back to you, but I don't think I like actually understood how much that drives decisions and should. Um, And so that I think at Vanta, again, going from VPs of engineering to founders to CISOs now, they're, yeah, on some level all trying to do the same thing. And it's a pretty similar tool set often, but the nuances are important and the way you talk about them is super important. And I don't think I like truly understood how important those differences were before Vanta. Interesting. Just kind of like they have the same goal, but they but you have to use very different like talking points. Yes, yeah. very different. Yeah. And it's almost it's that sometimes more than the product pieces. And I don't say that trivialize it, too. I probably yeah. would have trivialized it if you'd asked me like five years ago. Um, but there's like deep importance there in the language you use and all of that. Can you talk a little bit about just like how are you spending your time today? Mm-hmm. Like what? different hats are you wearing? Where do you sort of focus your time and energy on? Yeah, I try to spend time with customers across the spectrum. And again, some of that's, um, I find it energizing. Some of it's because that is, again, I think how I, where my confidence derives from about what we're doing. Um, Lucky to have a really great leadership team. And so there's a couple of years of building that out. But like now there's just wonderful folks who are driving parts of the business forward. Um, and so spending time with them is is both a big part of what I do, but also like really, really enjoyable. Um, and then, you know, honestly, there's things like this, which is was definitely not in my wheelhouse a couple of years ago. Um, but I've sort of realized that as a founder, it is it's kind of one of the things only you can do slash people expect you to do. I think that's actually like sort of underreported just like how important comms is. Like, I'm curious if you can maybe talk a little bit more about learnings. Oh gosh. That. Um, uh, yes. Because uh, not, not enough people sort of spend time on it as much yeah. as they should. And I mean, I think I was one of those people who, a couple of years ago was like, oh yeah, I read the blog post. It said it was important, but like, hi, yeah. I have five fires burning in front <laughs> of me. Like, I will get to that later maybe. Um, and I think now it's like, look, you cannot over communicate even when I feel like I'm boring and a trope and like saying things already, you know, people already know. Uh, it doesn't always come off that, it kind of rarely comes off that way, which I'm constantly surprised by. I haven't like totally, I think, understood that. Um, true internally, it's true externally. I think kind of to the, to the no website, like Vanta went through this period for years in the beginning of, being very quiet about what we did outside of to our immediate customers. Cause like, look, as long as we make our customers happy, all else will follow. Yeah. And that's kind of true, but like, it's also kind of not. Um, and I like now much more understand why that's important for the customers you have, the customers you want to have, the folks who work at the company, the folks you want to work at the company, like just all sorts of audiences there too. So switching gears, let's talk a little bit about sort of like, I guess, money. You didn't take venture money for a while. Um, why did you wait? Because uh, we didn't need it, but kind of actually, right? Like um, the goal was always to build a venture scale business, like large, independent, sustaining. That was never the question. Um, the question, I mean, kind of simplistically was like, should we take 20% dilution to have the cash sit in the bank account? And so we waited until we had, it ended up being $10 million of annual recurring revenue before we raised a series A. And that was the point where it did start to feel like money was a blocker to the business. But for so long, I mean, there were many blockers. It just like wasn't cash. Mm-hmm. And so kind of in a, to your prioritization question and a very strict like ordering of like, 
what problems should you solve? How do you like spend your day? And like financing never felt like one of the top three problems for a very long time. Do you, if you reflect back, do you think like you did something that sort of helped you be on that path? Is there like like an aspect of like monetization maybe you thought about early or? There is, this is like the best cheat code I have. Um, there's a blog post that Peter Reinhardt, formerly of Segment, now of Charm, wrote about cash flow. And I think it's called like, it's on his, his blog if you Google it, and it's like accounting for startup founders, like part one and part two. I think this was part two, I can't remember. But basically, there were these graphs that I didn't really understand looking at cash flow and from a customer on monthly contract, like quarterly contracts and annual contracts. And again, I didn't really understand the chart, except it could tell it's like you, you used much less money you charged everyone annually up front. Yeah. And so we basically did that and also kind of used it as a signal of product market fit. It's like, would customers pay for a year of Vanta up front when they hadn't used it before? If they do, it's probably more likely they like really want it or you're building something people want. Anyway, that's what we did. And we're, uh, the chart that I only still somewhat understand is in fact magic. It is the best cheat code. Um, and if you can charge your customers annually up front, you absolutely should. It's kind of like a unique thing about SaaS businesses yeah. that I think uh, it's like why I think maybe even markets look at sort of cash flow margins versus operating margins. Right. Um, I guess related, I think you talk a lot about sort of leverage versus efficiency. Uh, could you you know talk a little bit more about that? Why is leverage sort of the real key to success? Yeah, I think for like growing companies, scale ups, right? Uh, even in this kind of age of austerity and you know, no more zero interest rates, um, there's a lot of talk of efficiency. But fundamentally, the the like really abstracted the purpose of a growing company is to grow, um, and you cannot save your way to growth. Um, and so then I think in a you know when you can't spend frivolously, right? Then it's like, well, how do you spend as well as possible? Or the like the kind of leverage piece of like wherever you can invest a dollar and get $2 back or like do that all day long, right? And spend all of those dollars uh, somewhat yeah. literally because you will like get them back. Um, and I think, you know, it's kind of, yes, no kidding. Like everybody wants to find magic cash machines, but I think actually in an environment where everyone's telling you not to spend any money and like keep your burn low, it actually becomes way easier than it should be to like overlook uh, opportunities like that. I think one thing that reminds me a little bit, it's like, I feel like one of the best leverages in sort of my short career has been like actually just fire, hiring really good leaders. Yep. Like the That's amount that true. it actually unlocks. Yes. Uh, and you, you mentioned you have a really good leadership team, sort of any learnings from that? Like what, like, what was the sort of, what was the journey like in terms of like really hiring people where you feel like, okay, now the underlying business yeah. can sort of operate well. It's not easy. Um, I think a couple things, and I think as it in some ways get easier over time, maybe because you've like made, you know, the first set of mistakes, and then you get to make like more nuanced ones later, or just like as the business grows, it becomes more attractive to folks on the outside. Um, I think one one mistake I did is I brought in people who were so like so good at what they did, way better than I was. Um, I went through a phase where I sort of would like let them run, right? Because you're like, I don't, I wouldn't want to be micromanage. I don't even know how to micromanage you, right? Like you run sales, marketing, yeah. partnership, whatever it is, better than I ever would. Um, like I'm, I'll just be here in the background to support you. And 
I think what I found was these incredibly like smart, motivated people who wanted to come in and have impact would sort of like run the wrong direction and kind of, you know, run a little bit off the cliff. And I learned that's not at all their fault. That was entirely my fault. And right, like, yeah, I didn't know their function as well as they did, but I knew Vanta mm. and that perspective. And I think that confidence and, you know, figuring out how to be like, you should totally run, but like not that direction or like, oh, but if you go no. over here, you know, like we've gone over there and there's in fact some quicksand um, and figuring out how to do that has been, uh, you know, kind of more one of the things over the past year or two that I think has made Vanta a whole much stronger. Yeah, I really resonate with that. It's kind of like one half of the job is to find a good leader, but then actually like how you onboard them and yeah. how you sort of integrate them into your culture and values and your mission is so critical. Yes. All right, so switching gears, talk a little bit about, I guess, competition. You know, obviously you pioneered this space for automated security compliance uh, and you've evolved it into trust management. Um, can you talk a little bit about sort of that, that journey and like how you think about almost like being this category creator uh, that that Vanta's become. Yeah, it's it's very fun. I mean, in some ways, I it's in some ways much easier to copy what someone else is doing. I find I find much less pleasure in it personally. But you know, mm -hmm. there, there can be tremendous financial returns to it. So I might be doing it wrong. Honestly, I wonder that sometimes. Um, but I really like the the push we've been making into trust management because back to the founding, we never wanted to just be a SOC two company at all. Um, we started with SOC 2 because that was the market need. That was the like hair on fire founder problem that needed to be solved. We always thought about it as a way to help companies start up and build out and mature their security programs and then get credit for it with their customers. Yeah. And SOC 2 was just sort of the, the vessel to do that five mm -hmm. years ago. Um, and so kind of getting the opportunity now to continue doing the SOC 2 piece and the GRC piece and build around it into trust management has been really fun. Um, and uh, I wouldn't say preordained, but there's also a bit of like, you know, we've been talking, we had been talking about that for so long. Now having, you know, much of the team put against this and a lot of the, the work just going to things outside of core compliance because that part of the business works so well is like really gratifying. Can you talk a little bit about sort of your broader vision for trust management? Yeah, I mean, broadly, we think about it as, again, helping companies start up and build out their security programs and mature them over time. And that, again, takes the founder who's, you know, just trying to keep the lights on to maybe a like engineering leader who's trying to keep things going to hiring security and compliance experts who generally have their thoughts about how the program should be run which are great, they just don't have the, the time energy to go run all the little pieces of it. And then coupling that with getting credit for your customers and by the market. And so whether that's compliance audits or security questionnaires or you know real-time trust reports, just being able to take all of that work that's done internally to build a secure company and demonstrate it to the world and build trust. So of course, I mean, you know, this has taken off in a big way, and uh, I guess no surprise as other companies sort of gotten into space and sort of try to build similar products. Um, can you talk from like from your like founder psyche, like how do you how sort of how, how have you thought about competition, uh, mm -hmm. and maybe like also the evolution of that? I feel like 
earlier founders sort of deal with it a certain way and then you sort of get better at dealing with it. So yeah, um, bit of a roller coaster. I mean, part of it's just mind bending in that when we were starting out, no one thought this was a good business. It was this like weird niche back office process we'd found that we were going to automate. And, you know, very prominent VCs very politely said this is not a VC backable business, like Godspeed. Um, to, and you're like, well, I kind of agree to disagree, like see you in a couple of years. Um, to seeing a bunch of kind of copycats, including some that just like kind of copy paste the whole website and the whole product, like down to the text. Uh, and then there's like definitely the founder, some just like injustice feeling, right? Like you just took this from me. Um, and then you're like, well, you know, on some level that's capitalism and, you know, here we are. And, uh, you know, for it really is a battle for customer hearts and minds. And so, and in software, you know, part of what makes it so dynamic and fun is you kind of only are as good as your last release. And so you may have done things before, but like, what are you doing now? Um, and I think a lot of that had f kind of forced Avanta to get much better at like delivering value incrementally to customers, being really on top of customer requests and fixing rough edges in the product, um, having the whole team understand, you know, oh, here's what we wanted to do with it, but like what a customer is actually perceived there. Um, the like public communications piece, there's a lot there that like where I really learned, oh, we, we might, you know, be doing really well, but if no one knows and there's someone else saying they're doing better, like who's to say kind yeah. of. So thinking like go back to like the sort of this internal comms idea, right? So so you have a competitor shows up, copies it down to the text. Like uh, as a founder, how did you manage that? Because I'm sure the team is sort of furious that this happened. Uh, maybe if you can sort of take us back, walk us through that experience. Yeah, I think there's a bit of. Um Everyone kind of has their version of like the emotional response or the the wave of them, whether it's like anger or like fear, like wow, they did that so fast, you know, like are we doomed? And so some amount of just like letting that out, trying to be as kind of honest with ourselves as possible, what actually is a critique and something we should just fix, and what is mm -hmm. you know kind of fud, fear, uncertainty, and doubt, and something we should combat in a different way, but sort of take as almost fake news. Um, and I think trying to like channel some of the energy too into that um, and not, and then you taking whatever the, you know, again, the allegations are and trying to piece out like, what can we learn from and improve on and what mm -hmm. is in fact fake news and we should not uh, spend any time on. I think so coming to the, uh, to the end here, uh, a couple of questions uh, maybe on the personal front. So first one, just maybe you can describe a day in your life. Um, like how do you start your day? any customs or rituals? Yes. I see you in the farmer's market, so I know uh -huh. one of your Sunday rituals. Uh, but anything else, like I guess like maybe the working day, like how do you go about, what's your rhythm? I don't like meetings first thing in the morning. I'm much more of a morning person than an evening person. But I also find if I just like wake up and go to Zoom, I will feel like I don't have anything together, even if I might. Uh, and so actually there's more of a, uh, kind of slower process there of like making pour over coffee, which like takes enough time or forces me to, I still do it faster than mm. the internet says you should, but you know, something there. Um, uh, so then I'm just reading and catching up on um, customer comms, like anything, especially things that happened in Europe over the night um, before kind of getting started and whether it's, 
meetings at the office, generally in San Francisco or at home on Zoom. Um, but kind of a, a slower, a little bit of like planning of the day of like, what, what do I actually want to do? I try to do the um, write three things down every day that you like actually have to do. Um, and like sometimes it's the post-it note on my monitor and then you look at that and be like, my, and then I like often then we'll go off and like do something that's not on the post-it note and be like, wait, 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 no, no, like that doesn't count. Only, only the three things, right? Um, those are probably the better days. Actually, that reminds me a little bit, like, how do you all, uh, like, how do you plan sort of, you know, like, this is sort of the day, but like, if you sort of have to think about like a quarter, yeah. like, you know, where do you spend time on as the founder uh, or sort of what, what makes that three, three things list for the quarter? Yeah, usually the three things. I mean, there's, pro there's probably some sort of recruiting process on it, yeah. or at least historically. Um, there's probably some sort of like cultural shift or cultural tweak that makes it seem a little bit larger. But if it's, you know, everything from like, oh, this one team isn't, you know, as customer centric as we might want it to be or whatever it is, but like kind of some something on that order. Um, to your point, maybe it's a like new executive onboarding and you're just like, does how much does this person understand Vanta? Because um, uh, it's just kind of, confusing place if you've not been in it sometimes. Um, so much more things like that. Amazing. Maybe the last question, if you were to write a book about what's gotten you to this point in your career, what would you title it? Oh gosh, um, might try to steal the title Wizard of Oz, um, just back to the automated emails and the, again, even if you can code, and especially if you can't, like validating the idea with customers is just so important, and I argue much more so. What a great answer. Christina, thank you for the time. Thank you so much. First Block is brought to you by Notion for Startups. We at Notion care deeply about startups and founders, and we hope these stories inspire you to keep building. To learn more about how we are supporting startups, please visit notion.com slash startups.